0: Welcome to the Sports Fan Radio Podcast. In this episode, the panel of the Judge, Paul Deleggan, the Gelding, and the Professor talk with Associate Professor Michael Buckland, Head of the Department of Neuropathology at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and the Australian Sports Brain Bank. We spoke with him earlier this year on our YouTube channel about the cumulative effect of hits to the head or body and a link to developing CTE. With the Professor's recent comments that WorkSafe Victoria's report Finding no evidence the AFL failed to provide a safe workplace relied on reports that fundamentally misinterpreted the evidence around subconcussive hits and CTE, it seemed appropriate to release this podcast now.
1: It's a very good afternoon to the Sports Fan Radio panel and a very special guest today, the Head of Neuropathology at the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital and Founder and Director of the Australian Sports Brain Bank, Professor Michael Buckland. Good afternoon, Professor.
2: Uh, good afternoon, Mark.
1: Thanks for joining us today. And look, let's dive straight in. We've got you on specifically to talk about concussion and what can happen long term for people who've had concussions or multiple concussions. When I started watching footy back in the 1960s, the media and the crowd all thought a concussion was when somebody was knocked out and carried off on a stretcher. I think we've come a long way since the 1960s and in, in viewing what that is. But as far as medical, medicine is concerned, what's actually a concussion?
2: Uh, yeah, actually, that's a really good question. And uh, definitely our understanding has evolved a lot uh, since the 1960s. So concussion is essentially a form of mild traumatic brain injury. So you've actually injured your brain. Um, and that can manifest in a variety of clinical signs and symptoms. It often is um, people are either disorientated They might have a brief loss of consciousness. Sometimes they have um, uh, posturing where their arms or legs seem to go very stiff for a while, uh, or they might have a small seizure and they shake a bit. Uh, But you certainly don't need to lose consciousness uh, to be diagnosed with a concussion. Um, uh, It may well just be that you're not particularly orientated to place and time uh, momentarily, or you might stumble when you're getting up. There are a variety of signs and symptoms, and to me, there seems to be always active debate. Was that guy concussed? Should have he been taken off? And I think that tells you that it's actually quite a difficult diagnosis for a sideline doctor to make, particularly in the, in the heat of a match. But fundamentally, I think we need to understand that it is a traumatic brain injury. You have injured your brain when you've had a concussion.
1: How hard does a knock to the head need to be to affect the brain?
2: Uh, That's another really good question. Uh, There's no simple answer. Uh, Some very hard knocks to the head don't give you any signs or symptoms and you just keep going. In fact, what we know so far from wearable accelerometers, uh, so a little either in a mouth guard or a patch behind your ear, there are some studies now of sports players using those. It seems that you can take very, very significant blows or, or forces applied to your brain uh, with no signs or symptoms. And one, uh, one blow that may, have, may be not quite as big as half a dozen others, that one suddenly gives you signs and symptoms and you get diagnosed with a concussion. It seems that it is... Um, The the most uh, important forces are acceleration-deceleration forces and rotational forces. Uh, And rotational uh, injury seems to be what our brains are most susceptible to, and that leads to stretching and twisting of the nerve fibres in the brain. And it's likely that that, that that is at least one component of that traumatic brain injury, is that you damage your long, nerve fibres, which are communicating from one part of the brain to the other. So
1: would it be fair to say that you could get a knock to the head and show no symptoms or signs at all, but you still could have had an injury to the brain?
2: That's correct. That's correct. But the brain doesn't feel any pain. There are no pain receptors in the brain. So it's not like when you do your knee or something or your hip. I mean, that hurts. Um, but you, you don't have that same feedback when you get a brain injury. And as far as we can tell so far is that a lot of these um, big hits that don't give you any signs or symptoms, you can actually find very subtle uh, indicators of uh, a brain injury.
3: I remember um, one of the first comments I heard about this when it was starting to be studied a bit more from NFL and particularly their the running backs where they have the helmet-to-helmet helmet impact, there was a description of it being like 100 mini car crashes. And I just forgive the pun, but I can't get that out of my mind. It just seems surely that consistency of impact can't be great. I'm from a rugby league background, but with, with a helmet-on-helmet, helmet, the irony is it's trying to protect you, but surely that can't be great, that 100 times in a match, knocking-to-knocking knocking
2: effect. Yes, that's a good point, Paul. Paul. Um... I think the helmets were introduced to protect the players, but as as it turns out, they've been used as weapons and allows you to use your head as a weapon. Those sorts of impacts definitely give you uh, injury. I, I've been watching, I, I have to admit I'm from Sydney, I'm, a, I'm not an AFL person, but I've actually been watching a little bit of AFL, and uh, what's remarkable about that, say, compared to Rugby League or... Um, or NFL is that it looks like often you can get taken out from any direction. It's not necessarily a, a, a head-on to head-on impact. You can be running, get taken out from the side without even knowing this guy was coming after you. And it may well be that, it, to me, it looks like there's going to be more of that rotational injury, say, in AFL, compared to Rugby League or, or NFL. That, that's just my hypothesis. I don't have any data to, to back that up at this stage.
3: It's interesting you raised that. I had a very, very brief um, Australian Reels football uh, career because I'm six foot four. My friends thought I'd be useful. But when I was playing, that's exactly what I noticed. There were guys running at me from the side and I didn't have the ball. And I was, I was thinking, what are you doing? <laughs> Whereas at least in rugby, rugby league, you know, if you've got the ball, you're about to be hit and pretty hard. But these guys running at you without the ball, it was a real shock to me.
4: Professor, just a a quick question leading on from where Mark was before. So once a person has been in a sport, a collision sport, and they've suffered a concussion, and they may not have known about it or anything like that, and you hear that the likelihood of more concussions, will that become a smaller knock, an easier knock later on as they do, what is the percentage increase in the likelihood of further concussions after you've received the first one, the second one, the third one? It, is there an increase in the likelihood?
2: Uh, again, another very good question. I'm not an expert in, in that area, but from what I know, um, if you haven't fully recovered from your first concussion and you go back out, you're definitely much more likely to get a second concussion. And there does seem to be um, a whole group of people now uh, where the knocks that they take, as you've said, seem to, get, seem to be less force and result in a concussion. So yeah. there does seem to be an increasing susceptibility. I don't know if that's true for everyone or just for some people, but certainly for some people it seems even an, an innocuous knock can set things off again.
1: You were quoted in a New Yorker article called The Forgotten History of Head Injuries in Sport. Um, and your, your quote was, we seem to have gone backwards in our understanding of head injuries in sports. What, what was behind that comment?
2: So I, I was fortunate, fortunate enough to be given um, a copy of uh, NHMRC, which is you know, Australia's preeminent medical research body. They held an inquiry into boxing in the 1990s. As part of that inquiry, the Royal College of Physicians of Australia wrote a submission saying that the the knowledge that uh, some boxers, after having a lot of head knocks, undergo a delayed uh, degeneration in their mental faculties is so well described and so well accepted. It's found in every textbook that uh, no one disputes it. Uh, And that's certainly what I was taught. When I went through medical school, uh, that uh, there was this very unusual condition um, called at that stage, it was referred to as dementia pugilistica uh, or punch drunk, and that this occurred to boxers uh, after they'd retired uh, in a subset of them. Now, it seems that everyone accepted that until it was then described in all our favourite sports such as American football, now AFL, rugby league, rugby union. And now, if you read uh, much of the sports doctors' statements, including the Australian Institute of Sport, I should say, uh, which I find disturbing, uh, they say, actually, we don't really know. We're not sure if it's a real disease. Uh, The evidence is very tenuous. So we've gone from a position of accepting uh, widely this, um, this disease to, uh, you know, 30, 40 years later, we're now questioning whether it actually exists and, uh, and is it related to head knocks at all? So in, in that way, we seem to have gone backwards. I guess it seems to be that, um, I mean, obviously sporting organisations are very large corporations. They're very large and very well-funded uh, bodies. So there's always, once you get money into the mix, then... Uh, It's remarkable how how sometimes the scientific discourse can be uh, can be derailed or or polluted. So that's what I was referring to.
1: It's rather disturbing that uh, we seem to have gone backwards.
2: It does. I find it disturbing. I mean, I just for one, there was a very famous uh, movie called On the Waterfront, um, a black and white movie. Marlon Brando, Brando. Oscar for his portrayal of an ex-boxer. That was punch drunk so it had even got into that sort of you know, everyone understood back then that was just what happened to boxes it's when it's now moved to other sports <coughs> where there's a lot of head injuries or head impacts that all the arguments have started
1: all right well perhaps you'd like to explain to the viewers what's the connection between concussion and
2: cte ah yes a very good question as far as we know today the relationship is not as clear as you'd think it was. In fact, it seems that CTE, which is uh, this uh, degenerative brain disease initially identified in boxes, with the data to date, it looks like it's not just the number of concussions you have. What best correlates with your chances of getting CTE is the number of years of contact sports that you have played. As a rough proxy, of exposure to repetitive some of those impacts will be concussions but it's likely that the vast majority of them you never you just keep playing Uh, and it's those you know hundreds if not thousands of smaller impacts and your concussions that uh, drive your risk for developing cte later in life
5: so you could have no concussions in your sporting career and yet develop cte by pure fact of the multitude, uh, or the multiplicity of head knocks—I presume they're all head knocks, not not any other part of the body—that you receive during your sporting career.
2: That—that's correct. You don't, and just like with smoking, you know, you can have a—it's your You can smoke a pack a day. You may never get pneumonia, or you may never, you know, get a bad cough. But it's the number of cigarettes you have every day over so many years that exposure to low-level damage, that cumulative exposure, which uh, determines your risk of lung cancer or CTE. I'm
5: fairly certain that's not got into the mainstream of sports administrators, uh, that it's uh, in the way that you've expressed it. And again, to use Mark's words, that's that's disturbing.
2: It is. It is disturbing. And I think you're right. Whenever we talk about CTE, often the, the Administrators or the sporting doctors will say, well, we have the best concussion policies uh, around and you know we're very proactive about concussion. And in fact, they're obviously related issues, but it's not the same issue. Every sporting code needs to have not only great concussion guidelines, they need to have sitting alongside them a policy on CTE risk minimisation. And that policy needs to be basically driven by the need to reduce your cumulative exposure to repetitive head impacts and probably to increase the age of first exposure to these head impacts. That's the sort of the bare bones of a good CTE minimisation policy.
5: Well, I'm fairly certain that the uh, the AFL policy, if there is one, is directed towards concussion, but there's a blind going on here that there's there's a far more insidious problem going on, and that is the possibility of CTE amongst particularly players that play a lot of games. So I'd imagine by the time you play 200 games, depending on the role you play, uh, you might in fact be a a long-term candidate uh, because as I understand, CTE can manifest years, if not decades, after your last blow.
2: That's correct. That's correct. And we really need to speak more about that. And it's not dissimilar to uh, even... Sun exposure. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, you know, we all got sunburned, every weekend, and slap each other on the back at school on Monday morning. And that just doesn't happen anymore because we we understand that that cumulative exposure to lots of sun is not good for us. So we all now automatically adjust our exposure. We need to have that same that same sort of mindset when it comes to exposure to repeated impacts to the head.
3: I was going to ask your thoughts on on rugby league. I I thought it was a positive development when the assessment of concussion was taken away from a doctor on field who obviously had a bias to their club, and it's now viewed by a doctor who often isn't even in the same state, but they're viewing the game footage and they identify um, possible signs of concussion. The player gets the tap on the head and off they go. Now, there's been a a bit of a... a, outcry in terms, in some respects, that it's that's overdoing things. But in my view, that's that's a much better way of having an objective doctor, albeit with minimal evidence, to look at what's happened and, and to make a decision on the spot. Have you got any thoughts on that independent process?
2: To me, as an amateur, uh, I it, to me, it seems like a very good idea. It seems like a good step forward. I, I am aware of the, you know, there's some arguments over the details. Uh, it's not for me to say, but Taking, I'm not in any way downplaying the importance of uh, detecting and uh, concussion and removing players from the field of play if they've been concussed. That good concussion management is essential for its own reasons, but it's not the same reason as as CTE. Uh, So, you know, you've got to congratulate rugby league and AFL. They're starting to, as you've said, they're making positive changes in that concussion identification, concussion management, which is all really important. But it's not going to stop those players being at risk of CTE.
3: That's what I was going to change the question somewhat in that. It's not the guy who's just got the massive whack to the head. It's the old warhorse who's been there for 15 years, carting it up like a draft horse every second play. That, that might be at more risk. It's very interesting.
1: Another thing, Professor, just from this conversation alone, we've got all the big or the major sporting organisations talking about their concussion protocols and how they've improved all the things that they're doing, can I take it from the discussion that, and what you just said then that, well, yeah, that's all well and good, and that looks after that side of it, but that might have no bearing on whether somebody is a candidate for CTE down the track or not, because they may have played, Let's well, I'll take my grandson. My grandson's currently eight years old and has started playing football. So if he plays till he's 32, that's 24 years of subjecting the body to numerous shocks, bumps, hits, and let's not worry about he may never be concussed, but there's a possibility from what I understand you're saying is because of the longevity, he could well be a candidate
2: down the track for CTE. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So increasing the age of first exposure to these repetitive hit impacts also means, like if you delay full contact version of the sport till someone's 12 or 14, you're already shaving off, um, you know, six or eight years in the develop, exposure in that developing brain. So that, that's certainly a controversial proposal. And a lot of people, looks, I don't know if Greg agrees with it there. It's not an easy issue. Nothing wrong with encouraging kids to get on the field and have a run and a kick. We just don't want them to get hit in the head a lot
4: how do you stop people from getting hits in contact sport? You know, and that they willingly go on the ground knowing that there's going to be knocks and and punches. But that's another side. There's the injury itself. Then there's the mechanism of how it happens and how do you control that?
2: So you can see that the way we're going to solve it is we can bring all the codes along with us, and they understand the need. As far as I can see, the rules in the games have been changed quite a lot over the years. It's not like there have never been any rule change changes. How do we... And I, I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to tell them how to change the rules. I have no idea how you're going to change the rules to reduce re, reduce the exposure. But then, there must be a way. And mm-hmm. uh, if everyone can work together with that understanding... We'll find a way forward.:
5: Doctor, refer the problem with CTE, as I glean it, is that uh, you can't diagnose it and you can't cure it. Uh, is that going to change, do you think, in, in the I don't know, short to medium term?
2: So yes, a confident diagnosis can't be made during life. Um, it requires examination of the brain at autopsy at this stage. In fact, you could argue that most degenerative brain diseases are like that. So if, say, your doctor tells, you know, your mum that she's got Alzheimer's disease, that doesn't mean that if you look at the brain under the microscope, that's what you see. But we've spent many, many billions of dollars and, you know, decades intensively researching Alzheimer's disease. So our clinical diagnostic criteria are a lot better. It's still not perfect, though, and it's not uncommon for us here in neuropathology to find when someone, a brain comes to us with this clinical diagnosis, uh, that we find something different. Or we might find that disease plus another disease. So it's just that CTE has only really been intensively studied for you know, about a decade. So we're a long way behind where we are with diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease in life. In terms of treatment, uh, there's no specific treatment. Uh, that's correct. Uh, just as there's pretty much no specific treatment for Alzheimer's disease, some very you know some symptomatic treatment for Parkinson's, but there's no, you know, all these degenerative brain diseases are, are you know, in my mind, the next frontier, uh, because we're all living healthier and longer lives, so uh, we're more more and more people that are, are going to be exposed to degenerative brain diseases, including CTE. Thank what you. I think is, you know. With CTE, everyone still argues, well, when it comes to the sporting doctors about cause and effect, there's no good cause and effect. If we can move beyond that, um, what I think is a bit of a silly argument, suddenly we have a disease where we understand, oh, look, there's a, a mechanism that gives you the disease, this re- exposure to repetitive head impacts. like That's almost a, a chink in the armour of all these dementia type diseases. If we find one cause, it's like, well, what then what are those impacts doing at the molecular, cellular level? And is there a commonality between that and Alzheimer's and so forth? So in a way, I see researching CTE will not only help everyone that's played a lot of footy, but it may well give us unique insights into all these other baffling de- degenerative diseases, such as Alzheimer's disease. I think one of the downsides of the discussion around CTE that there are a lot of people like you, Greg, that suddenly freak out and there's a lot of anxiety out there that, oh, I'm going to get this disease. It's going to, you know, rot my brain or whatever. Uh, Whereas we know that, in fact, the vast majority of people, even with a big exposure, don't get the disease, but they spend a lot of time worrying about it. So it's almost you've got to balance the message of this is important, but it's, it's it's not a death sentence.
3: I was going to point out, I've I've noticed several times you've you've said that you're an amateur, uh, Professor, that there's a a very large ego who runs rugby league at the moment. Uh, I'm just hopeful that if if you're an amateur, he hasn't even taken to the training track, but um, Mr Volanis often can comment as if he is an expert. I'm hopeful that they listen to people who we all think you're an expert but who you think are an an expert because it sounds such a complex area that it's, and we're playing with lives here literally – I'm hopeful that the the, the experts that, that you describe as experts will be listened to, and not egos, and not 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 profitability, but before um, what needs to be, I think, caution.
2: Yes, yes. Look, I'm an expert in examining brains under the microscope and dissecting them. Uh, that's uh, my field of expertise. Uh, but assessing people in life is is certainly not my area of expertise. <coughs> but yes. Look, I, I I need to say. It, there is a lot of hubris and a lot of noise uh, that comes out of all the codes, I think. Um, and, I mean, I guess because it's a game and it's a show. I mean, everyone wants to put on a show. That seems to be part of the business. But, uh, you know, to, to, um, you know, to uh, Mr. Volandi's credit, uh, he did clamp down on head knocks, yep. contact yep. with the head, quite, uh, and copped a lot of flack for it when he did. We've had we've had a little bit of email correspondence, so he, and he's responded to my letter. So, you know, I'm hopeful that they, it might be a slow process and they might be a bit reluctant. But I am hopeful that the codes will eventually come along and and wake up to, to what the real issue is. Perhaps
1: perhaps we can finish on this one, Professor. You were talking about the aspects of AFL and uh, what from what I understood, the ability to cop a rotational sort of hit is that more dangerous as far as you're concerned, than getting one from head on or was I placing that too highly?
2: The rotational ones seem to be the worst ones, but whether or not, I don't know if I I could I would make a direct comparison. I think if you know it's coming and you can brace, it's probably not as bad as if you're unaware and it comes from the side and you get a rotation. But that's, that's more a educated guess than a statement of that. And you asked me before about, you know, how much force does it take? I mean, I I know that phenomenon of the glass jaw and that someone gets hit and goes down pretty quick and they're never going to be a good boxer. So it seems there's, it seems to be a lot of individuality as well in our susceptibility to these forces. And it may well be that because you're actually really tough and can absorb all those blows without symptoms, it doesn't mean you still, your brain still is not getting injured. Game professor,
5: I, I think we all understood it. Pick with AFL the acceleration deceleration concept, but the rotational, which seems to be specific to the to AFL, as Paul was saying, it's a 360 degree game. I just don't think that's been properly recognized amongst the, uh, the rule makers as being a particular problem uh, relevant to AFL. Yeah,
2: I, I think you're right. It, to me, it seems that AFL is. Uh is really at risk, that the players are really at risk for those real rotational um, injuries. Mm. I think any any clash, particularly if there's a clash and a fall, um, there's always a bit of rotational uh, stuff going in there as well as acceleration, deceleration. Um, but I agree, it, it does concern me that, uh, that the whole 360-degree game concept when it comes to traumatic brain injuries.
4: Just a quick one, Professor. Does it require a, an actual hit to the head or if you get like a bone-jarring type of collision in your body, which can still, sh- still shake you considerably, can you get concussion from that rather than a, a head clash or the head hitting the ground?
2: That, that's a good question. and I think John alluded to that before. Mm. You don't actually need direct contact with the head. Uh, yeah. So... As you said, it can be force transmitted from the rest of the body up up to the brain or a a whiplash-type injury where your skull gets sort of jiggled about uh, because your brain inside that skull is sloshing about. Your brain is the consistency of, like, firm jelly. So it's pretty soft. Uh, And for it to sort of jiggle about a lot and particularly twist, often it's an impact, but it doesn't have to be a direct
5: impact. Mm. Professor, you must watch, watch an NFL game and as the expert that you are, you'd be horrified every 25 seconds or so. Go, oh, God, that's, that's, that's going to do some damage down the track.
2: Yes. Uh, same with rugby and and Aussie rules as well. I think AFL, but, uh, they're, sometimes they're hard to watch because you know that, oh, that's a traumatic brain injury there. You can sort of pick them. I bet you that's a traumatic brain injury. Mm. Thanks very much for coming on.
1: Professor, we really, really appreciate it. Um, I'm sure the panel and the viewers have learned a lot and learned more than they did before they started watching today. So we really appreciate it, and thanks very much for your participation in our show today.
2: Thank you. And look, Mark, can I just say, if anyone wants to know more, they can just visit brainbank.org.au, and that's our official uh, website, brainbank.org.au. I'll make,
1: I'll make sure I get it in the comments um, after the show.
0: Terrific.
1: Thanks very much.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sports Fan Radio podcast. Why not try another one of our podcasts from this series or Series 1? You can also check us out live on YouTube every second Sunday from midday.